Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a cookbook written by musicians as a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures, and of creating new memories, all of which will raise money for Help Musicians UK. Join me, Jennifer Johnston, as each week I talk to a music professional about how they're coping during the pandemic, what they're cooking, and what food means to them. I'm delighted that my guest this week is the American mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, and you can hear her talk with searing honesty about body positivity, finding balance, and her Nana's biscuits. Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and over the coming weeks I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food and drink traditions and tastes, all to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity offering one-off hardship grants to musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy, and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures, and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm delighted that my guest this week is Jamie Barton, the American mezzo-soprano, who is joining me from her home in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll find out how she's coping with lockdown what she's been cooking, and what food means to her. And we'll also talk about body positivity, finding a sense of balance, travelling, and our nanas. But first, a huge thanks to the sponsors of this series, Berry and Dry, Liverpool's beloved speakeasy hidden behind an anonymous black door, a cocktail bar with a huge heart and great jazz. During lockdown, we've all become very aware of how important local businesses are within their communities. Berry and Dry and their mixologists, the best in the business, have set up a delivery service on Fridays and Saturdays where they bring their signature cocktails ready mixed to your door, hugely appreciated especially by parents who have faced a stressful week of homeschooling. Cocktails available include classics like Negroni, Manhattan and Old Fashioned. And all you need to worry about is whether you have ice in the house. You can find them on Instagram as at Berry and Rye. Now to introduce my guest, the winner of the Cardiff Singer of the World competition in 2013 and the star of 2019's Last Night of the Proms, Jamie Barton is a force for good and is rapidly turning into an icon. Described by one critic as opera's nose-studded rock star, she is a champion of LGBTQ rights, an advocate for body positivity and for singers of all size appearing on stage, and is also a whiz in the kitchen. What's not to love? Welcome, Jamie, and thank you for joining me today. Now, the strange thing is that we should have met in real life long before now, but we haven't. (laughs) So it is a huge pleasure to talk to you, albeit remotely. Well, I am delighted to be here and I'm delighted to actually see your face. It's so funny because we, you know, we sing the same kind of stuff. 
So we never end up in the same place at the same time. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so and I actually, guess... I've seen you on TV. And so it's, I'm still seeing you on TV, just in my home and in yours. Um, it's a really lovely thing, actually, to be able to talk to you today because we find ourselves in such a strange world right now. Friendships are having to be forged, not least over the internet. But in particular, lockdown is presenting a whole new set of challenges, not just for us as individuals, but also very much for us as musicians within a wider community who are having to face actually a potentially very different life from what anyone had expected. How are you finding lockdown? Oh, man. I mean... <laughs> Quite honestly, lockdown has been both harder in many ways and also brighter in many ways than I would have imagined. Harder for, I think, a lot of the same reasons as anyone, whether you're a musician or not, is is finding it. The the uncertainty of the future and and the quite honestly, the job loss uh, has been at least on an individual level already just devastating. So processing that has just been a cycle of some days I'm completely fine and I feel like I can function and other days I just am going to be in the bed until 6 p.m. You know, which as I've been, quite honestly, as I've been being a little more open and honest about my own uh, experiences with this, the more I'm finding that actually that's that's quite common. That's this kind of uh, waffling back and forth, you know, between uh, ways of processing is, is something we're all feeling for sure. Um, but, you know, on the, on the silver lining side of it, I have been asking the universe for more time off. <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. And, you know, while I absolutely in no way, shape or form said, please send me a pandemic. <laughs> you, know, you know, at the same time, this is some dedicated time off. And, you know, while I, I certainly don't want to make light of a situation that is really terrifying for many, 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 many people. Um, I'm also trying to look towards the good in in a really terrifying situation. And quite honestly, getting to spend months probably in in my own home is a silver lining. Yeah, it's definitely rare in our job. It really, really is. You know, my family, who I haven't actually seen since the beginning of the pandemic, they're about an hour and a a half away uh, up in the North Georgia mountains. Um, but you know, once, once this passes, I can't wait to go see them and I can't wait to actually have time at home to, to spend with my parents and my nephews and the rest of my family. Like this is something I don't really get very often. And I don't, I don't have my own family, you know, I, I, I don't have children, uh, husband or wife or anything like that. And I honestly quite, I can't imagine being in your position, you know, as a traveling singer with a daughter, you know, it's, I know that it's just difficult, but even I, you know, the the traveling minstrel, (laughs) you know, the rogue family member who doesn't have children, you know, even I am feeling just really excited about the prospect of actually getting some dedicated time with my family and friends. It's it's a luxury that just doesn't come up along very often. No, and I also think, as you say, we wouldn't wish a pandemic on anyone, and certainly not in an employment sense. Yet there's something very human about all going through it together globally and having to confront the fact that it's a complete equalizer. Mm. It, it doesn't distinguish whether you're a opera singer or a doctor or no matter what what you are professionally the virus will hit some and not others and because it's such a silent enemy because we don't know what we're facing really it has actually done some remarkable things in terms of community building that the internet is magic i mean who knows how it must have been for people during the spanish flu pandemic oh my gosh we're so lucky to live in a period where i can speak to you and see you and it's instant communication, even though we're separated by the Atlantic Ocean. So I'm very grateful for that. It's been an interesting few weeks in terms of learning to use technology. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but another thing that I've found, and, and I think starting notes from Musicians' Kitchens has really shown this, because of our need to stay indoors and to stay at home, home cooking has suddenly become really important. Yeah. And has become a focus 
where normally, you know, we all cut corners or we all hope that somebody will do it for us. Um, sadly, I don't have a staff at home. <laughs> um, I wish I did. But it's therefore become that food has become front and centre in a yeah. way that probably hasn't for many years, at least, certainly in our community in the UK. Wartime was probably the last time, the Second World War, where rationing didn't end until late 1950s. And so we've had the luxury of endless choice, endless access to food, mm. in, in some respects, endless access to wealth, actually. And so suddenly, obviously, there's there's a great deal of poverty springing up that I think lockdown in the UK, and I'm sure in America, it's as always the poorest that it's affected worst. Absolutely. Um, so our yeah. food banks are overwhelmed, or our charities that are dealing with poverty are overwhelmed. And obviously within that, the musicians themselves who've lost work suddenly have gone from having an income to having nothing, which yeah. is the whole point of this project is to raise money towards the grants that have been given to music, musical families who are in need. The flip side of that, though, of course, is that in looking at food and what it means to us has prompted lots of thoughts about what the relationship between food and music music is and so it'd be interesting to hear what your thoughts are because you clearly are a keen cook I've not just seen <laughs> one recipe I've seen a number um I love the fact that you post on Instagram the pictures of what you're cooking because actually I think it's very important against the background of body positivity as well to show that eating healthily doesn't have to mean just eating a few leaves of salad every day so oh, yeah. do you actually love cooking or is it something that you choose to do because you have to I love cooking quite honestly if I weren't an opera singer I would probably be a chef. <laughs> that would have been the next thing that I would have loved to do. Um, you know, putting out an, out into the universe. If none of this works <laughs> out, I would love to do that. <laughs> Your guardian angel of Julia Child is standing behind me as we speak. What exactly. To play her on stage as well. I mean, how cool is that? If you're a chef in in waiting. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That. So you're referring to uh, Bon Appetit, this Lee Hoiby piece that I do. It's about 20 minutes, and um, I do everything from beating egg whites into a stiff pea and to uh, separating the yolks of the eggs from the whites. It's such a fun thing to do, but it really does help that I actually love to cook. And these are skills that I have honed over time. Kind of going back to your question, I have a long, I think as, as many of us do, a long history with food being something that is not just a sustenance source in my life. I grew up on a farm in the middle of the North Georgia Hills. My, my family was not rich by any stretch of the imagination. And I did distinctly recall some times where we kind of struggled for food. But we had gardens and we hunted and we were a family unit. And by that, I mean, I lived on a, a piece of land that was owned by my grandparents and then, you know, willed to other parts of the family and my, my family. And, you know, so food was not only at times a struggle to be able to, to have, but it was also a, a love language. My grandmother making food for us, uh, and by us, I mean the entire family, my entire extended family, on Sundays, to the extent that <laughs> she, she passed away two years ago. And even now on Sundays, my family still gets together at her house and cooks food for each other, you know, and it's been a part of my life for a long, long time. Food has equaled love and comfort. And even though it was a struggle at times, and certainly in my own life, and I've been quite open with my own eating disorder struggles and stuff like that, even though it has presented a struggle in some ways, it has been just an integral part of my life. In, in a happiness, uh, emotional sort of way. And so that's continued. I did grow beyond the valley where I grew up, did go on to college and then on to this career that takes us literally all over the world. And one of the things that I love so much in what we get to do is the traveling and the food experience, getting to, you know, go into a country that I've never been into and experience flavors and tastes and textures that I've never imagined being together, you know, and sometimes they are incredible and at other times they freak me out. But <laughs> that being said, it it has absolutely propelled me forward in terms of something that keeps me hooked into this career. I love what I do. I really, really do. But I think you'll probably totally <laughs> agree with me that it can be really exhausting to be on oh, the road. Completely. Yeah. Without hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it's one of those little lessons that they don't 
I, I don't think there's any way they can teach us before we get into this how to anticipate or mitigate the exhaustion that just comes from that. Um, no, and because I, if you're constantly challenged by new things all the time, that just by itself is exhausting. That's a really and good we point. Have to, we have to work on top of that. Also includes some degree of keeping our health. Well, some people could take risks if they're abroad. We have to mitigate those risks by eating in places that we think are sensible rather than just picking up something from the nearest street food cart, which yeah. is what a traveller would actually do. We don't get to have that experience. We have to stay safe. So yeah. it's a it's a funny mixed bag. And yes, you're right. We're not taught these things at college because how could they? How could anybody <laughs> predict? Firstly, what will happen to you? But I think also then it's a question of adaptation to your own journey. Absolutely. You know, and food has been along the way one of the joys of being out there. Um, it's also in so many ways. You know, when we go on gigs, you know, even if we're in a place for a month or two and we have a kitchen uh, to be able to cook in, we're still arriving that kitchen not knowing what kind of equipment we're going to have you know not knowing if there are going to be any spices or oils or you know anything to cook with you know so it's not just going to the market and buying what you want to cook and coming back and being able to do that i have a literal travel trunk that at least in the united states when i drive to a gig i'll throw this in the back of my car because it has everything from chef's knives to spices to you know to whatever i need to make a kitchen feel a little bit more like home when i'm on the road and that's a real luxury when I get to do that because not all gigs are ones that I can drive to. <laughs> and this travel trunk exactly. is sizable. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, you're, not, you're not alone in that. Barbara Hannigan also is very well known for carrying, in fact, she carries chef's knives in any suitcase she takes anywhere in the world. So I do too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing worse than a dull knife, no. honestly. <laughs> or but as no. I've had one ring to cook on. Oh you know, my gosh. And no oven, a broken microwave. And we never know what yeah. we're going to face, do we? I think. Absolutely. I've, I, I've been in places where I've been there for a month and a half and all I have is a water kettle, a mini fridge and a microwave. Yeah. And you get really, all of a sudden, it's like you're on Top Chef or something. You know, you get really, really inventive with how you can cook things for sure. But, you but know, it isn't I, always necessarily nice or healthy. I find myself eating out so much when we're on the road. And I, I do try to cook. I, I really prefer to cook. I, it's, it's a creative outlet that has nothing to do with my job, which is really, really important to me to keep some sort of creativity going that isn't, you know, uh, directly dependent. Uh, you know, my, my bank account isn't directly <laughs> dependent upon it. There, there are so many, <laughs> so many struggles. <laughs> You, you've been very open, actually, also about rejecting the diet industry and everything that it stands for. I've, I've been on a lifelong journey with my own uh, relationship to eating and stuff like that. And I was working with my therapist and working with a dietitian, and both of them were telling me, you know, Jamie, we think one of the reasons that you have issues with binge eating is, you know, due to dieting. And I, I couldn't believe them, quite honestly. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't imagine uh, a world where the healthiest decision for me was to not diet. Uh, because we're, we're told, especially I think as women, but the, the world as a whole is told that dieting equals being healthy. And to me, the reality of it was dieting was equaling me not eating during the day. And then getting to night and just, you know, hoovering everything that, that was in sight. You know, so dieting, the, that version of dieting was directly leading to me binge eating. And mm -hmm. so it took a while and some hand-holding. And luckily, like I said, I, I had access to a therapist and a dietitian mm -hmm. who could guide me through this. But I stopped dieting entirely. Um, I stopped judging my body for its own hunger cues, which hunger cues are as natural as the body's impetus to breathe. It's something that comes up that tells your body, I need nutrients. I need these nutrients. You know, when you have cravings, yes, some of us have cravings for sweet things or salty things, and we can. I, I know that I can very easily get into a loop of really judging myself for what those cravings are. 
but nowadays when when I actually am eating during the day and I am listening to what my body wants, hearing what my stomach wants, you know, listening and saying, okay, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. Okay, what do I want? Well, you know, this sounds good right now. Sometimes this might be a pot roast. Sometimes this might be a salad. Sometimes this might be ice cream. But the, <laughs> the point isn't in, in my life in the way I found myself to a, a much healthier place in general, um, not just in terms of an eating disorder, but also in terms of my weight and my blood sugar count. And the literal numbers have gotten so much better is by listening to my body and not judging it when it says, you know, I want something that might be higher in fat or something that might have more sugar or whatever, because when I'm not judging myself, then I find myself naturally lending towards balance. I find myself wanting more vegetables and more fruits and eating at more regular intervals. And so therefore for me, blood sugar becomes then stable. And so I swear that our grandmothers probably knew each other because (laughs) if my Nana had been alive and listening to you say this, she'd have said, well, love, a little bit of what you fancy does you good. And she was always very keen to emphasize that. And I think that that generation really understood that because they didn't have all the fast food that was available. They had very much more of a connection from farm to table. The supply chains were a lot shorter. They weren't having food that wasn't in season either. So my grandmother wouldn't understand eating strawberries at Christmas. Their overall approach to food was completely different from our generation's grab and stuff in your mouth. Yeah. Phrase. That's the thing about lockdown as well. I think a lot of people have sort of tended towards thinking it's a bit like going home for Christmas. You can just eat <laughs> whatever you like, whenever you like. Um, but actually finding some form of a routine is very important for everybody. I struggle with fasting. The fasting diets that are on the market that are very popular, I feel utterly terrible when I'm on. I've also put aside all of that stuff. Because I think in our job as well, I think people don't realize how much energy we use during rehearsals. You know, if you're standing on your feet for six hours a day, singing for a lot of that, or not even, it's not even about just the singing, it's about the concentration that it takes and requires of you, particularly if you've got a very strict maestro, you are inevitably going to burn a huge amount of calories, (laughs) um, regardless of whatever you eat. There has to be a foundation or a baseline of energy. And in that sense, no different from an athlete. Um, I think the cliche of the fat opera singer is, is something that's not helped us either in that. It's definitely, uh, you know, especially when you have a director that wants you to be running all over the stage and stuff like that, and you're trying to support your singing and your breathing at the same time. It's it's a large balance for anybody who's up there. Now, there have been times in my life where I have gone, okay, you know, I've been in a role and it's been one that's been physically demanding and I've gone, okay, I need to up my cardio right now. You know, I need to do that specifically so that my breathing doesn't get high. I can I can maintain a lower heart rate while I'm running around like a mad woman on stage, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it, it is an athletic endeavor what we do, you know, in, in so, so many ways. Openly said, and I think I applaud you for this hugely, because actually the more of this that's said by us, the better. Audiences want to see themselves reflected on stage. And what they don't want is to not be able to feel they can commiserate and identify with the characters that they're encountering. I wholeheartedly approve of that. Yeah, It's so refreshing to go to the cinema or to the theatre or to see an opera and look at somebody and think, gosh, they're just like me. Absolutely. I mean, I I have to say, like, I love that we're living in the age of Lizzo and Jamila Jamil and... Yeah, thank God for those girls, really. Oh, man. You know, and quite honestly, I love, personally for me as a plus-size person, watching something like Shrill. Have Have you seen Shrill? No. Okay, it's it's a great television show, which basically has a larger woman in the the leading role going through what would be like any storyline that you would see on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. But 
this this person just happens to be somebody whose body I identify with and who a lot of people identify with. And I remember, oh, there's one scene somewhere in the first season where she ends up at this pool party and she's terrified because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to wear a bathing suit. And even though her friend is like, come on, let's do this. You know, her friend is feeling totally fine getting out there in a bathing suit, being a larger lady. She is not. And so she shows up, you know, just completely buttoned up, you know, she just like head to toe in clothes. And there is just this beautiful scene of this pool party that has been put together specifically to be a safe and supportive and beautiful and fun environment for other plus size ladies to come and just enjoy being in the water in their own skin around people who won't judge them. And to see this lead character, like I said, buttoned up to the neck in clothes, but then slowly start to release that anxiety and enjoy herself in this place. I sat there with tears in my eyes watching this going, I want to be there. I want to go to there. <laughs> Please, you know, let let that pool party exist somewhere because I, I want to do that. But I really do feel like if if we tell audiences that, you know, via the casting that is being done, that the only people who have romantic relationships or are desired or deserve to be on stage, period, end of sentence, are the people who are thin and, you know, pardon me for putting this out there, but thin and white, then all of a sudden we are telling the audience that those are the ideals that we should all go for. And you're alienating a massive number of people who might fall in love with something if they see themselves reflected back from the stage. And actually, in an era where opera and classical music is a very small part of what's available, younger people are so overwhelmed with stuff to choose from. We have to do that. We have to be seen to reflect the society from which we come. And so I think it's becoming more and more important with each month that passes, because particularly at the moment, you know, the world is drowning in culture via the internet. We have to have something that it doesn't need to set us apart, but we have to encourage a new generation into being not afraid to watch an opera because it's in a foreign language. There are surtitles and not to be afraid of watching something because they've always thought it's old fashioned and realizing actually it's all about all of the important things in life. Yeah. And if they get beyond that, then if they're willing to watch, then seeing somebody who looks like them as well might get them in the door again, or even yeah. if it's the virtual door online again, it's got to happen, I think. I completely agree. Coming from a family, like I said, who, you know, we were up in the North Georgia mountains, we, we didn't listen to opera, we didn't listen to classical music. And for a very long time, I didn't, I just, I, I never went towards those, uh, those things because I didn't think that there was a place for me. And the funny thing is, is that when I actually did start listening to classical music, I started finding a, like a grounding of my own self that I didn't know existed that is available for all of us. You know, this, it's, quite literally not in copyright <laughs> you know no, it's universe. it has a universality which actually most art forms try and achieve but I think because opera has so much going for it what often I think people don't realize is that very often you just have to put somebody in a theater to hear the orchestra live to hear the singers live and they get sold on it very rapidly because it is yeah. so overpoweringly fantastic yeah. Obviously, not always. We understand that there's variability in it. Um, Absolutely. If you go to any of the decent houses, that the experience, the visceral experience that you can be given is so different from what you'll get from a cinema screen or from watching a music video. So I Absolutely. Think, I think the more that we speak out about that, kind of the better, really. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? This whole period has to be about almost like a reset of rules. It's a reset yeah. of rules about food. It's a reset of rules about how we approach the world individually and also collectively. And I think also it has to be the case that we cater for everybody, even within our own community, and say, actually, it's not okay to prejudice against somebody because of the color of their skin or because of their waist size or because they might have eyes that cross slightly, even if they've got the best voice in the world. 
it's extraordinary that those judgments get made and very often they get made behind closed doors. And so it would be really refreshing if we went back to the principles that occupied people in the 1960s or 50s. Yeah. Where it was the great voices of the day, not yeah. on appearance. Because Pavarotti is a good example of somebody that in today's money, if he turned up um, as a fresh face, despite that incredible voice, there would have been people who'd say, I'm not casting him because he's too large. Absolutely. There are so many singers of so many eras. You know, you look back as far as Dame Clara Butt, you know, these are, you know, turn of the 20th century singers who are, you know, to, to use a, a cliche phrase, at least within our industry, would not have been HD ready. You know, they, they wouldn't have been models in the sense that we think of them now. You know, Joan Sutherland, I think of, you know, she, she was very broad and had, you know, the, the, the perfect... Chin. Yes, the chin. <laughs> the jaw. <laughs> but just the yeah. perfect, I mean, perfect singer anatomy. You know, I really, th- these resonating spaces are Amazing. the reason mm. that we adore her voice, you know. I, I think, you know, one of my idols, Marilyn Horn, you know, like, I, she was never a tiny person. And yet what she gave, what all of these artists gave to the world is literally the stuff of legend. I agree with you. I think that we are on an upswing in terms of celebrating artistry, despite, not even despite the packaging, in including of the packaging. I think Beauty is not just a set, you know, symmetry, you must be under this weight, you know, you must be this tall or this short or something kind of thing. I actually personally find beauty in such uniqueness, you know. Well, and it's very much in the eye of the beholder, as we would say. And I think um, the more that the likes of Lizzo and others speak out, hopefully the more that the youth of today, which I do not consider myself one of any longer, sadly, (laughs) I think they might open their eyes and realise that firstly, there's nothing wrong with them. So the epidemic of anorexia and bulimia that seems to be hitting might break its grip if they appreciate that actually nobody who you see in the media has generally been untouched by digital retouching packages but also that real women have stretch marks they've had babies so they have baby tummies they've perhaps had you know scars from accidents there's mm-hmm. i mean there's any number of things and and the need for plastic surgery as well so that really worries me as a parent of a child who is about to enter her teens that mm. the images that she sees on the media are those of women whose bodies are not in their original condition because yeah. they've had thousands of pounds spent on them under the knife. So yeah. it's definitely the case that the more real that we all are, the better. And I yeah. think that's what I love about your presence in our profession because, and that's very clear from your appearance at Last Night's The Proms, <laughs> is that it's really important to just be who you are and be totally yeah. upfront about that. Yeah. And say, I am the person I am. And look, it's perfectly okay to be that person, all the layers of that person, yeah. whether it be sexuality or appearance or vocal talent or charisma, or there's lots of things that make up a whole person. It's a really healthy thing to have somebody at the forefront saying these things. So thank you, actually, from particularly on behalf of all the younger singers coming through. Well, quite honestly, (laughs) I struggled for so much of my life with this exact same thing from the weight perspective, from even a sexuality perspective. I, quite honestly, I, I spent a long time of my life feeling like nobody would ever want to be with me romantically Um, and living in a reality that I created for myself where I didn't expect anyone to be on, on team Jamie in that kind of way. And it took number one therapy for me that that was a big key step for me and doing the work to get to a place in my life where I, and I'm not even joking. It was only when I was 33 that I hit the time where I thought, you know what, actually, I do think I'm beautiful and I do think I have worth. And actually, now that I'm opening my eyes to that, I'm starting to see that other people think that I'm beautiful and other people think that I have worth. And it wasn't until after that that I understood that I was bisexual. And it wasn't until after that 
that I began to really release my own self-judgment on my body, on it not being what society deems as, you know, the ideal and what that means for my life. The fact of the matter is, is that I am my own romantic hero in my own story. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, and I, I speak of that perspective particularly because that was what plagued me for so long. That was what my fixation was on. But I have a wonderful romantic life and it has never been hindered by anything other than myself. And the, the idea that I didn't have a place in the moment that I released that and let that go and really just started focusing on celebrating myself for who I am, because this is my body. This is my life. This is the one that I have to live. You know, I might as well just love the hell out of it. Then, then I started to find my people and I started to find my, you know, romantic relationships and these things that I missed for so long in my life. And to me, that was just so revolutionary that I was like, I have to put it out there in some way, shape or form, you know? And But being... that's what's so lovely about the honesty. With the honesty comes the, the silver lining, to put a phrase back in that we talked about earlier. But actually, everybody deserves somebody to love them, firstly. Yeah. And actually, in terms of sort of accepting yourself, that therefore had an effect on your relationship with food too. So it's a holistic thing, isn't it? Everything is in, infected and everything is involved. When your self-confidence improves, therefore so does your attitude to a whole raft of other things. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, by turn, like we were saying earlier, so does my health. My health gets better, my mental health, my physical health. And really at the end of the day, that's what I want. You know, that, that is, that is the goal that is, you know, to be happy and healthy. The, these things are, oh, absolutely. You, know, you know, that if, for everyone, I think, you know, that is the goal, you know, well, so we it's, want you to be singing as long as you can, obviously. And that goes for <laughs> all singers, clearly. Um, but there's also a sort of offshoot to that, which comes back again in the circle about food, which is that, the choices that you then make, if you go by the principle, like I said about my grandma, you know, a little bit of what you fancy does you good. Mm-hmm. Then if you allow yourself to have an ice cream, you gain enjoyment from that. So it makes you happier. And when you're happier, yeah. you feel healthier. And there's a huge sort of cycle involved in all of that. And the yeah. lovely thing about food, therefore, is that it's about nourishment. It's about community. It's about all of the things that are important to all of us, as music actually is too. And mm-hmm. so it's such a lovely thing in this period, particularly to celebrate our relationship with food and not make it a damaging thing yeah. and to put aside of what we read, we read in the media and actually go back to the, the dishes that make everybody happy. And it's very interesting when I've talked to musicians about their, the recipes that they've submitted to the website and I've asked them to write their stories of why it is that they want to put this one forward. They all have stories which have some form of personal connection to the dish that they've sent. And very often it's a childhood memory or it's a memory about somebody who may be no longer with us. Mm. Or it's a relationship thing where they say this food, like, you know, Catherine Stock, for instance, the pianist who comes back off tour and has to make her sunshine breakfast for herself because she's been so deprived <laughs> of all the things she loves while she's been away. Yeah. So all, all of that so is all wrapped up into this giant package, isn't it? It really, really is. And, and I also, I kind of want to go back and just say that I, and this is my own opinion, but I, I certainly through this uh, pandemic, you know, processing through this in an emotional way, I have absolutely leaned into food as a comfort source. Um, and I have absolutely put on weight. <laughs> you know, I think as many of us yeah, have. A lot of people have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I want to say, I, I don't think that that is something yet again to judge yourself about. Because similar to what you're saying, you know, leaning into food as a comfort source, I think is, you know, if you have access to food and that is something you can do and that's something that you want to do, it literally doesn't harm anyone. Putting on a couple of pounds really, for the most part, is not going to harm you. Going kind of exactly to where you were saying, though, like, I'm finding that as I'm coming back to balance, 
in so many different ways. And I'm not talking specifically food, but emotional balance and that that sort of thing through, through this processing of this uh, global tragedy that is happening, you know, this global, global trauma that we're experiencing. I'm finding myself finding the balance with food a little easier now. And I will admit that it has been a struggle. It's been a real struggle to feel myself feeling larger and to not dislike that. But at the same time, I am doing what I can for for my mental health. I'm doing what I can for my body. Mm -hmm. Food is a comfort. And when I'm finding my way back to balance, then I, I am finding, once again, coming back to balance in terms of food health. And that's, that's just me. That's, that, that is my experience. I think it's okay for us to all have this experience. I think it's okay to lean into food if that's a comfort source for you. And I think it's okay to pursue balance whenever that is a mentally healthy thing for you to do. Because I think that before that point, it's really hard to, you know, crack the whip and be like, I can't do this. I must be on a diet, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. You know, it's, 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 it, that doesn't actually benefit you. I think sitting presently with your body and your emotions and letting yourself answer the question of what do I want, honestly. Have you been able to find what you want during this? I mean, one thing that we've had in the UK is strange shortages in the supermarkets. Mm. So bread flour has sold out almost completely (laughs) across the whole United Kingdom, which has been revelatory to me because I would never, ever make bread for myself because it's just (laughs) too complicated. I mean, I like cooking, but that's a sort of step too far. I found it really fascinating seeing what has been available and what hasn't. I mean, I cooked a Japanese meal the other night because mm-hmm. everything was available in the supermarket, but I couldn't buy eggs. It's a very curious thing that there are definite patterns that are coming out of comfort eating for people. Yeah. Um, have your food choices been dictated to a degree by the, that sort of thing, or are you still managing to eat what you want? Absolutely. I think we're we're experiencing, I, I've been quite lucky actually with, with the markets around my place because minus toilet paper and that sort of thing, it's it's actually been pretty easy to get supplies for, for things. But there certainly has been shortages. You know, I, I'll go in and they won't have chicken at some point, you know, that, that sort of thing. But actually I've been really enjoying just kind of going and thinking of uh, recipes that I might be able to build off of what's there. And I've definitely had recipes that I've been trying out that, you know, I've got all of the spices for, and I'm just waiting to see if they have pork butt, you know, (laughs) you know, to be able to do something or if they have pineapple, you know, like random, random things like that. But I I like, it's, it's kind of a cooking challenge. Once again, this is kind of me on top chef in my own brain, you know, just kind of coming up with what I can cook that, that, that is available. Um, But I've been quite lucky in that we, we haven't really had a a massive shortage of vegetables or fruit. There have sometimes been shortages of herbs and stuff like that, the the fresh herbs and stuff. But, you know, at most points, if I have ordered from the grocery store or if I have actually gone to the grocery store, they'll have broccoli, you know, they'll, they'll have squash, you know, the, the potatoes and tomatoes and stuff like that. And so what I've actually found, and this is kind of funny, you know, when I'm on the road, Quite honestly, particularly when, when I'm in Europe, I miss American food in a way that I just don't miss it when I'm here because it's just so available when I'm here. You know, but when I, you know, spend time in Germany, I really want chicken fingers. You know, like I really want like these comfort things that oh, are totally, totally. It's you the know. Same to me. <laughs> I have always a longing for a pork pie when I'm away. And it's not something I would ever oh. eat today when I'm at home. So there's a real irony there as well, because I, oh. I look at I look at Melton Mowbray pork pies, which are the best. Yes, they are. I look at them in the supermarket <laughs> and I say, no, I can't have one of them because they're shockingly fattening. <laughs> but then they're the things that, that I think because they represent home is yeah. what you're basically saying. So that food is home thing is very present. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is a bit like your chicken sticks mm-hmm. uh, it's fish fingers for me oh yeah 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 totally 
and that's a childhood thing. So it's very fascinating how emotions get carried through to food as well, because you have an emotional reaction to food. And therefore, if you're feeling lonely or if you're tired, you're plump for the things that make you feel happy in some way. So absolutely, there's definitely a huge connection there. Absolutely. You know, it's this, this emotional connection that we've been talking about, you know, but it's, it's funny to me that when I'm on the road, I tend to lend, lean a little harder into the comfort foods because there is a, a, a natural discomfort, like you said earlier, in being uprooted all the time and being on the road and not having your things and not having your bed and, you know, all these things. And so what I found actually during this process is that I'm really what I'm craving are the fresh foods. You know, I I have access to, you know, fried chicken. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I can get fried chicken, you know. (laughs) But what I'm finding myself like really stocking my, I've been actually doing a lot of uh, stocking of my freezer with different vegetables and fruit, um, you know, that I can take out and make smoothies or or take out in uh, vegetable portions and stuff like that. I've, that's what I've been really, very interested in, you know, so I'm making random things like fennel gratin and here's a whole bunch of broccoli rob. What are we going to do with broccoli rob? You know, like I'm, I'm finding so much fun in actually going through and seeing what kind of uh, vegetables are out there that I wouldn't normally get in a restaurant that I wouldn't normally be cooking with and going, okay, how do I cook with this? What do I like about it? Do I want to use it again in something else? You know, it's, it's, it's a really fun challenge. And do you find then that the things that you would normally class as your favorite foods aren't so much of an interest right now? I think only because they're so available. And there are some things that I, <laughs> so I'm, I'm allergic to wheat uh, you know, so I'm definitely not one of the people going out and buying up all the wheat flour. <laughs> but that being said, I actually have been getting into a bit of gluten-free baking, which I, you and I are very similar. I, I really enjoy cooking, but baking is like the next level of, I, I don't feel like putting that kind of effort in. <laughs> but one of the things, going back to my grandmother, which by the way, I, I was going to mention earlier, I also called my grandmother my nana. Aww. So it's kind of great. We, 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 we really have that connection, but <laughs> um, my Nana made the best biscuits um, and by biscuits. Now, just of to explain, because yeah. this is for a British audience as well as an American audience. Yeah. Biscuits yeah. are not the same in both places. No, no. So, so we would call biscuits scones over here or scones. Kind they of. Wouldn't, they kind of, they don't have fruit in them, do they? No, they don't have fruit. They're not as dense as scones are as well. Mm. They're, they're a little bit fluffier. They're just kind of, if you can imagine, like a, a little bread cake. It's, it's kind of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the you know, is, and we, we don't really have an equivalent in real yeah. time. To an American audience, what we call biscuits are actually cookies. Cookies, so yeah. It's very confusing. I could spend a whole hour <laughs> talking about the difference in language between the two countries and food description. Totally. But um, yeah, biscuit, biscuits, would you serve them then with a stew? So you can serve them with a stew. You can serve them in so many different ways. Quite honestly, um, where I come from, they're very much a breakfast food. Uh, my Nana would make biscuits in the morning along with like bacon and eggs. And so we'd have like a couple of, you know, biscuits with some bacon and eggs. Um, you can put whatever you want on the biscuits. They can go either sweet or savory. Um, a lot of people do buttered biscuits and then we'll, we'll put jam mm. on it. Or um, my actual favorite way of having biscuits is actually split in half and putting ham and a slice of tomato, which is not really common. Um, Most of the places in the United States where you go for breakfast will have some sort of, yeah, they're kind of like little breakfast sandwiches is kind of what they are, Mm but they, the, the, their version of biscuits sandwiches would be like bacon and eggs and cheese on, on a biscuit, that kind of thing. It's very much a savory sort of thing, but I've been finding that I can actually make some gluten-free biscuits that taste unbelievably like my Nana's biscuits. Oh, that's so lovely when that happens as well. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to lie. I teared up. Oh, I honestly did because I tried... the memories of childhood. Oh, I, I tried for years to get my Nana to give me her recipe for her biscuits because 
a Southern woman's biscuits are, it's, 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 it's a recipe that is honored. It's something, you know, my Nana's biscuits are known, you know, like I, I have friends who, who still have memories of just having these biscuits. So, you know, I tried for years to get her to pass that down to me. And quite honestly, she didn't have a recipe, which yeah, of course, like my Nana, actually. Yeah. Again, yeah. Women who had to make do. And so Absolutely. they got used to being so familiar with it. They could actually, they didn't even need a a weighing scale they just no. use their hands <laughs> uh, picked up a lump of butter or whatever oh, that's enough and they yeah. knew by instinct, which is so different from how we're taught to cook now oh my gosh I actually consider that a form of witchcraft I I yeah, just right. I don't understand like anybody who can bake without a recipe I I don't understand but my nana you know I'd, I'd say okay so how much you know how much milk goes into this and she'd be like well you know until it feels right exactly <laughs> And I'm like, well, that doesn't help. (laughs) You know, so I just, while she was alive, I was never able to make biscuits from wheat flour before I knew that I was allergic to wheat flour um, that were anything close to what she she did, you know? And then I stumbled upon this gluten-free recipe that I've been making. And it, when I tasted the biscuit for the first time and it reminded me of my Nana's, I literally... My, my eyes smarted up. I just, I, I was almost in tears because it was such an emotional connection to a food that particularly with having discovered a wheat allergy, I just didn't think that I would have access to again in my life. If you were on death row, would that be your choice of meal? Hmm. Yeah, honestly, it'd be close. Mm. It'd be really, really close. If I could be assured that like these biscuits would be anything close to my Nana's biscuits, you better believe that's, yeah, hands down. (laughs) Now, Jamie, we've sadly run out of time. It's been such a joy to talk to you. (laughs) You Um, too. Thank you so much for being willing to participate in this. It's a very big project, but one that hopefully will embrace the whole musical community worldwide. And so it's, it's really great that to kick this off with somebody that has such a deep connection to everything that we've talked about. And so thank you very much. And I hope that next time we can hang out in person and continue this conversation. I cannot wait for the day we actually get to do that. <laughs> I know. The trouble is, when would it end? <laughs> we'll be there all day. <laughs> Maybe so. we'll end up in Munich one time and we'll just go sit in the beer yeah, garden. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> really hope so. And I also hope, like for everybody, that you stay safe and you take as well. care in this time and that hopefully it won't be too long before you get to see your family yeah you too seriously take care stay safe and it's just a joy to get to talk to you I'm so grateful to Jamie for joining me and talking so openly and honestly about such important issues what a force of nature she is we all need to find a sense of balance in these difficult times and it's really important that we believe that food isn't an enemy Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner, and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune into the next episode, where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and remember... Food is love.